собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog. Or to srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the third of five events for Nature's Revenge, Ecology, Animals, and Waste in Eurasia, the Spring 2021 Speaker Series at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. To see the entire schedule for the series, go to www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease. That's C-R-E-E-S. Animals are some of the most impacted living things in the Anthropocene. The presence of humans has fundamentally altered their lives and environment. Humans have used animals for labor, food, sport, commodities, companionship, and as objects of scientific knowledge. What does humans' complex relationship with animals say about human society? And is there a particular inflection of these issues in Eastern Europe and Russia under state socialism? I turn to Tracy McDonald and Mariana Shigelska for some insight on the transformation of animals into objects to be caged, shown, hunted, traded, and studied in Eurasia and the wider world. Tracy McDonald is a historian of Russian and Soviet history at McMaster's University. She co-edited a volume of documents on collectivization and is the author of Face to the Village, the Ryazan Countryside under Soviet Rule, 1921-1930, and is the co-editor with Daniel Vandersommers of Zoo Studies, A New Humanities. McDonald was also one of the three founding members of the independent documentary film company Chemadon Films. Mariana Sigelska is a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for History of Science in Berlin. Her most recent articles on zoos and colonial encounters are Elephant Empire, Zoos and the Colonial Encounters in Eastern Europe, published in Cultural Studies, and Pandas and the Reproduction of Race and Sexuality in the Zoo, which is in Zoo Studies, A New Humanities. She's also co-edited a special issue of Catalyst, Feminism, Theory, and Technoscience, titled Planetarium, Human-Vegetal Ecologies in 2019. Here's Tracy McDonald and Mariana Sigelska. Tracy and Mariana, can you, let's, I thought we'd start by just having each of you give a brief introduction to the focus of your research. Uh, Tracy, you can start. Yeah, it always ends up, you know, um, I'm going to, Try not to talk to monologue. We don't like that. Um, but I always end up, you know, going back in time. So I was looking for a second project. And uh, after many false starts, um, I started to be drawn to um, something involving animals. So um, a long time ago now, 2010, maybe, I started to try to think about as a historian, what kind of uh, institutions would generate sources on animals. And so, of course, the, the zoo, a zoo came to mind and I started to read more and more about zoos, develop an opinion about zoos. And the, actually, the archive at the Moscow Zoo was extraordinarily welcoming and they were extremely nice to me. And I spent a couple of summers there uh, gathering material and then decided that I actually didn't want to write. They have a pretty good history that they produced themselves and translated into a number of different languages. And I didn't really want to write history of a Moscow Zoo that would be critical, but I didn't want to write a send up either. So I changed tack and at that point and refocused on to because they were changing jurisdictions about who was responsible for trapping animals and transporting them and importing exporting for exhibition for zoos and other any other institution. Um, they're also responsible for breeding lab animals for experiments. Um, 
And so that jurisdiction changed over time. So I, I focused on that instead. So the Moscow Zoo had jurisdiction in the 20s, early 30s. So they do play a role and they continue to play a role unofficially, of course, but then became it becomes a different project that looks at this process that also involves different Soviet institutions. And then through that fell into a couple of other different projects. Mariana? Yeah, I think my trajectory was a bit different. So I started with kind of very broad questions because I was studying philosophy and gender studies. And I was just generally interested in, you know, questions about um, nature and culture. And then I, they are way too broad questions to think with. So I needed to narrow it down. And I was looking for a kind of empirical case, um, something to start with, something really material. And the zoo presented itself as such a fascinating, peculiar space uh, to unravel so many different um, human-animal relations, you know, that uh, now my work uh, started to be on, on human and animal relations as a way to think about the material and cultural aspects of scientific knowledge production. So I'm actually coming to it, uh, to historical questions, but from interdisciplinary studies. So I made my way to the archive a bit <laughs> later than Tracy did and from a different angle. And I mostly deal with the history of zoological collections in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and I became really fascinated with the rich history of zoological gardens as these hubs for acclimatization of exotic animals, popularization of natural history ideas, and also most recently, wildlife conservation. But um, because I was doing this research from the gender studies perspective, uh, which I hope I would talk about a bit later, uh, I was focusing on specific zoos, but not really on specific regions because I was following my uh, cases because usually my method is to follow specific species. I like to think with specific animals. Uh, and only recently that I started to um, research zoos in Eastern Europe. Uh, so most recently, I've been writing about elephants um, and in Eastern Europe, so the, the historical trajectories of colonial trades in elephants as both zoo specimens and also circus and traveling show attractions and their bodies. So uh, this, uh, in this part, I pay special attention to, to ivory from elephant tusks. Um, and my focus is on Central and Eastern Europe because this is a region or I mostly study Poland at the moment uh, as a country that doesn't have overseas territories. And I was wondering like what uh, an animal that has such uh, rich, that are such rich reference to colonial uh, trade, uh, what do, kind of meanings do they, do they have in places that don't have the same colonial history? Uh, but there's other animals that I've been thinking with recently, and uh, to name uh, them, it's uh, wild boars. I'm 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 a part of a research group uh, in the Czech Academy of Science, uh, in which it's a research project on hunting wild boars uh, in Europe, uh, and this is connected to the outbreak of the African swine fever. Uh, here in Europe. This is more contemporary. I'm working there with anthropologists mostly and I'm the historical voice or history of science voice in the group. <laughs> uh, and other two species I wanted to mention are the European bison and the Polish conic horse. Uh, because these two species, uh, they came up in my research in Polish zoos about elephants, because those are two other charismatic species that are more connected to um, um, the extinction projects and, and uh, breeding back uh, extinct or nearly extinct uh, animals uh, in this part of the world. Humans, of course, have a very long relationship with animals um, in a variety of ways, and there's no need to name them all. But can you give some some historical background to when the zoo developed this idea of putting them in captivity and putting them on display, both for entertainment, but also for scientific, you know, inquiry and whatever else the institution of the zoo, you know, does, uh, Tracy? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question um, because menageries go way, way back, right? So, and most histories of the zoo trace sort of origins, they start with menageries, but I think you're talking more about what we conceive of as a zoo, so a large park-like environment. So originally Victorian zoos, they were designed with um, 
so that with the audience in mind, right? So that small cages where you could always see the animal when you came to the zoo, there was no looking for it, it couldn't hide. And over time, particularly Hagenbeck, one of the biggest animal traders uh, at the turn of the century, started to argue that you can't hold animals in that way, that they, you need to put them into natural enclosures. So there becomes this debate within the zoo community around the turn of the century, early 20th century, about what kind of zoo is appropriate. And a lot of people still defended the, the people and said, look, we need they need to see their animals. You can't just have these, you know, and of course it meant you have to move from urban space. A lot of the original zoos were in urban spaces. So it's it's like the second half of the 19th century we're talking about in terms of starting to, to answer your question about putting large exotic animals on display and obviously connected to colonialism, as Mariana was saying, um, and she can talk uh, about that aspect of it um, as when, when she responds too. And so the Hagenbeck model becomes something, if people are familiar with San Diego Zoo, they're the ones who take it to its um, you know, logical um, extent or the gorilla exhibit at the Bronx Zoo, for example, which was there, they had all this trouble trying to breed. I work on, on Dina as a gorilla uh, and I'm writing her story. Um, and like Maria, unlike Mariana, I think we, we kind of, it's kind of cool because we have opposite trajectories. Like I started with the history and then got interested in the, the sort of philosophy, activism, animals, and so on. And Mariana started there and got back to the zoo, which is kind of cool. I didn't know that. Um, and then just the, the last bit about you know, sort of the Hagenbeck model, these large enclosure style zoos, is that they are also based on um, deception in many ways because, um, because animals like to rip trees down and tear things up. Sometimes those things are electrified, the vegetation's electrified, so animals are kept back from them. And so it's not the paradise that it looks like uh, on the face of it. If I can just answer to the same question, it's also largely based on illusion, on a visual illusion, because who's privileged in this situation of this um, panoramic view, as the Hagenbeck's exhibitions are being called, is the viewer, is the audience. So you don't really, as 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 the visitor, you don't see the hidden moats um, and and other enclosure type of things that are there to separate the animals that could be endangering each other. So it looks like a very harmonious, you know, beautiful view. But in fact, there is still uh, these technologies of captivity are present. And I, when I think about that question, um, I think of um, also the fact that zoos are actually constantly under reform. You know, that, that zoological gardens are until today always kind of referring back to the past and reforming themselves. So, you know, you have these three big um, paradigms that, uh, or sometimes anti-paradigms that define the zoo, which is like prison, spectacle, um, and refuge. So I, I think now we are definitely in the time of, of the zoo as a refuge to save endangered species from extinction, etc. But you know, there's always this critiques of the zoo that oh, it's prison for animals, so we have to prove that we are not a prison, uh, or how is it different that we have these you know events where you can pet animals in the zoo, interact with them? How is it different from a circus? Uh, so the spectacle comes in. So I think there's like a, a lot um, constantly of rain. Inventing the, the the concept of what a zoo is, but then in the end, it is always about looking at animals. It's always about watching wild or are they wild? I don't know. <laughs> wild animals uh, and 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 having fun. So this this element of of entertainment it kind of never goes away, even though we think about them as centers for conservation right now, or that's what the zoos want us to think. But like again, going back uh, in time, I think also this this big break between menageries private menageries and, and zoos, it's it's connected so much to what Tracy was uh, talking about space. So uh, actually most of the menageries were not located in city centers. They were more on the outskirts, if you think of uh, Jardin des Plans or other places uh, like that, um, or Schönbrunn in Vienna. But then uh, the public zoological garden from the, from the eight, 19th century, this is a, a strictly urban phenomenon. 
So uh, we can think about it as something that relates so much to political projects uh, belonging to modernity. So you have industrial revolution that transforms the city landscape. And so there's a need to reinvent kind of new spaces of nature, like parks, um, spaces for recreation. And the first zoos were also um, usually established in Europe uh, in harbor cities. That connects so much to colonialism because, you know, the the trade was coming and harbor cities were the places where you would um, uh, dislodge all of this uh, cargo, including living animals. Mm, and of course, uh, with other kind of modernity, classic phenomena like the emergence and development of global capitalism. So zoos, although they're so often compared to prisons, they also bear a huge resemblance to department stores, to the modern idea of the department store. As a city phenomenon, I think that the zoo is also in the 19th century and early 20th century, it was also something um, of a prestige for a city to have a zoo. So it was like having a theater, having an opera house and having a zoo was kind of part of this cultural you know, institutions of networks. So even though we think it's an institution of nature, it's very much connected to culture as well. Are zoos in uh, Central and Eastern Europe and in Russia or in the Russian Empire or Soviet Union, are they part of the same logic of zoos in the West? Or is are there any differences in how they're conceptualized? Just because I come across this in the early in the early research that I was doing, particularly around the transit, the, the revolution itself. And uh, so you have a group of individuals carrying over from the pre-revolutionary period into the revolutionary, the Soviet period. They want to keep their zoo up and running. Right. And they're needing to they need funds. And that's a big problem with zoos. They need a lot of money. Uh, and if you don't have a lot of money, the first ones to suffer are the animals. Right. Because they can't write petitions. And so they um, so this group of individuals and, and some of them are involved in science as well. And so they try to emphasize that connection because they need to justify themselves as a socialist zoo. Right. And so they need to say that we're not a capitalist zoo. Capitalist zoos are places of entertainment. They're loud. They don't care about the animals. The gift store is more important than anything else. And we don't do any of that. And the funny thing is, of course, they need money. So they have gift stores and they have band shows and they have all these other things that capitalist zoos have because they need to raise money. But at the same time, on paper, they justify themselves in a different way. And I found that really interesting in those early documents. The other interesting thing, uh, and the more I talk to people who work on zoos, is that zoos are, they have this network that's kind of otherworldly almost, that it is above politics because these people are so passionate about collecting animals that they're just like, you know, I don't care who I'm dealing with, who I'm trading with. I don't care what the politics are. I want that panda or I want pandas are hard to get. But, you know, I want that elephant or I want that gorilla. And uh, they're talking to each other. So a lot of times you have these very surprising connections. So the reason that I, I happened upon all of this material on this on on Dina is that I was looking for an animal trader, uh, Louis Rue uh, company, who had been accused of um, in 1934, the youth group at the Moscow Zoo, um, 20 members of the youth group were uh, arrested, of the young zoologists, the young biologists were arrested, and they were accused of um, working with this fascist organization, Louis Rue, who took healthy animals from the Soviet Union and dumped sick animals on, on them, <clears throat> which, of course, none of it is true, like it's all fabricated based on the fact that these young people had traveled to Germany in the 20s. Um, but uh, so what's interesting about that, though, is in the post-war period, they start working with that company very quickly again, uh, but the New York branch rather than, uh, which makes sense, too, because Berlin, you know, wasn't in the best of shape uh, after after the war. So, yeah, so it's an interesting question. It's an interesting issue to look at. And it's different, of course, as you know, on paper than in practice. How about how about for Eastern Europe, Mariana? Are there any you know differences that you can point to, or it's hard to find much differences? They they seem to be very globalized institutions, very uniform. Uh, so because of my research topic, I actually tend to to visit zoos everywhere I travel, 
not very much recently, but yes, it's it's not really fun because I don't particularly like Zeus, but it's I'm just curious, you know, like, okay, how do their architecture look like and et cetera. And I'm looking for those differences and it's hard to find anything when you just go there as a visitor. But I, I think in history, there are different um, practices and different ways of dealing with um, this typical issues that Zeus always have. Like what is always lacking in Zeus is space. All Zeus ha never have enough space. They always want to expand because they want to expand the exhibition. As Tracy said, they always lack funding as well. Uh, so um, for Zeus in Eastern Europe in, in the 19th and 20th century, they were kind of sometimes, even though they were on the outskirts of some empires like the German Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it didn't necessarily translate very well into uh, getting animals from those famous traders. So for example, zoo I'm researching at the moment is the Poznan Zoo. Uh, so it was in the German Empire in Prussia. And uh, even though it could have good connection to Karl Hagenbeck, it wasn't so easy because they didn't have the funds and they sometimes uh, got something. So they developed different ways of securing, um, you know, specimens to display. So I think that in East, from what I observe, for example, in Eastern European zoos, uh, captive breeding was uh, started a bit earlier because of necessity, because if you breed animals, you have a resource to exchange with other zoos for other specimens. So you can expand the collection this way. Uh, so uh, th that was really uh, an interesting thing to to find that really the, the breeding uh, way before you know conservation became a, such an issue already started. I'm actually quite interested in this issue of the exotic trade and how it maps you know other uh, historical um, phenomenon and systems. You know we've already so far capitalism colonialism has been mentioned, but talk us through a bit how, uh, you know, and, and maybe Tracy, you can talk about the Soviet period and Ariana, maybe more of the present or whatever you guys, we both want, but how does the, the animal say an animal from a wa the wild move, get to the zoo? And then, then also this captive breeding thing, which I have to say, I didn't think of until you just mentioned it. It's also a great question. Um, and as Mariana was talking, I was thinking about when I was reading materials on the immediate post-World War II uh, period in the archive, um, you know, after the war, they're starting off with almost nothing because the major zoos, both of the major zoos, they ended up evacuating animals, they ended up euthanizing a lot of animals before the war started because, and this happens all over the world, uh, because there's a fear that if the zoo is bombed, then poisonous snakes will escape, uh, predators will escape, large predators will escape, and even animals that we might think of as benign are really problematic if they run wild in a city. Uh, and this, there's a, a long interesting history in Eastern Europe of this as well, uh, in, in the war and animal escapes and so on. So after the war, they're starting with almost nothing. And in the documentation, like these, there was a pair of saiga. And these are these really funny looking antelopes from Central Asia that they're trying to trade. And so for a while, people are, are trading them for saiga because they're bartering. And there's a lot of bartering going on in that period. And uh, eventually people clue in and they're like, we don't want your saiga because they drop dead. Like at the, you look at them and they die. And, uh, and the Soviets were like, damn it, they figured it out, right? Because that's all they have to trade like at that point. Um, and what's interesting though, is that over time, to pitch for uh, funds to compete, as Mariana suggested, like if you don't have the funds, they're selling to the highest bidder. So if you can't compete with New York and London, then you're not gonna get the animals that of a world-class zoo, right? So I think when you see the pitches for funding, they're like, this is Moscow. We need to have a world-class zoo to be a world-class city. And that's the argument based on sort of pride and nationalism and so on uh, to try and get the funding and there's a, you know, for a long time, every zoo believed that they had to have, you know, a lion, a tiger, an elephant, uh, you know, like all these sort of check all the boxes, right? Until more recently, and Mariana can talk to this in terms of uh, conservation. And even in Russia, like I looked at statistics for animal survival rates within zoos. And of course, the places where animals had the highest survival rates were, say, somewhere in uh, in Kira, for example, at the time, which was only local fauna, 
were in that zoo. So they had what they needed to feed them. They had the right uh, climate and so on. So it's incredibly hard. Like if you think about how much money it takes to have all these different enclosures at the right temperature, to provide the kind of food that you need to provide for all these different kinds of primates, if you're gonna exhibit different kinds of primates, it's absolutely wild. Um, and of course, in Russia, they try to do it on a limited budget, which always ends up being a problem. Uh, and captive breeding is a super interesting question. Um, and, and they're trying to do it in Russia as well. They also had um, a thing in the summer, which was called like the, the garden of young animals. And they would take all these baby animals that, that had been bred at the zoo and put them all together so that everybody could see the babies playing, like baby primates, playing with baby bears, playing with, well, first of all, all the reports are like, oh, everyone has fleas and ticks and worms and because we've not cleaning it properly and they're all together. And then at the end, what do you do with them? How do you take this bear who spent all summer living with a monkey and put him back in the bear enclosure, right? So there are all of these things, there's an underbelly here that you wouldn't see as a casual observer. You'd be like, oh, look at that cute garden of young animals. But one conditions and then two, their, their fate become really interesting questions or perfectly horrific answers actually to those questions. Well, it, it, so the typical, you know, to answer your question, how exotic animals come to European or Russian zoos, the typical way would be you have an animal trader who has agents in different usually colonial countries that like capture animals or actually they pay locals to capture animals and they buy them from them and then they have to do all the logistics of you know transporting them it really depends also on the species so with with gorillas that tracy is uh, working on it's usually baby gorillas that would be captured because uh, well the, the adults are way too dangerous for humans and that necessarily often meant um killing the mother uh so there's a violence always embedded in those in those practices, uh, and then yeah, the traders uh, can sell can sell the animals to to zoos, to circuses, etc. And I think in, in Eastern Europe, as I said, um, the story looked a little bit differently because of of the different kinds of resources um, and maybe also different connections. So you would have different uh, routes to Asia to procure some animals. So a funny story that came up in my research was when uh, Poznan Zoo was trying to establish um, a collection of lions uh, they accidentally were given uh, camels because um, in the Polish-Soviet war, um, there were the camels uh, and they, after the war, they were just kind of wandering off and the Polish soldiers intercepted them as kind of pets. And then they brought them back and they put them uh, put them, um, uh, gifted them to the zoos. Uh, and uh, these camels, they had a few of them, so then they could trade with Hagenbeck for the lion that they really wanted. So, you know, there was also kind of a strategy to it often. Uh, but other sources uh, would be missionaries. Missionaries played a huge role because those were aristocratic people or, or religious people who went, um, for example, to some African countries. And they would often also bring um, you know, lion cubs or, or other animals that they would donate to to the zoo or big game hunters because, yeah, they, they hunt, but they also sometimes bring the, the living animals back. So those were usually the sources. And it's really interesting because uh, very often the zoos that lacked resources try to argue that, well, why don't we even need the exotic animals? Our and, and specialists, especially veterinarians, you know, or zoo managers would say, we have our own fauna, domestic fauna is so interesting. We should better know this fauna than, than the exotic one, but it just didn't work. They always needed the exotic animals anyways. But then uh, part of my research uh, concerns the fact how sometimes the, the native species, especially these super charismatic ones, like the, the European bison, the Vicent, they kind of bear the traces of exotic animals because they're huge, they're recognizable, they become rare, and then they are kind of the local exotics. Let's talk about animal studies and zoo studies because, you know, one of the challenges, and I'd like both of you to address this, is representing animals, right? And, and, and reading the introduction to the zoo studies volume, I, I was struck by the, the, the effort to, to address animals as individuals, which, which immediately struck me as an interesting term because that also has an ideological component as well, the idea of individuals. But nonetheless, uh, talk about this, this problem of, of 
you know, writing about animals, writing their story. And maybe here, Tracy, you can tell us something, some about Dina. Uh, when the, the materials we have are mediated through humans and their voices. Uh, Mariana, why don't you start? Uh, so, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge that immediately comes to mind is the, 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 the you know, anthropomorphism. It's the most obvious one that like uh, because uh, we rely on human chronicles of the histories of animals, um, they will be inevitably, you know, always through human lenses and they will be largely anthropomorphized. And that really happens with a lot of um, large mammals um, that get sometimes also infantilized in those stories. But I think the other problem is also um, sometimes losing the side of the animal itself and its own life worlds. So just treating them as tokens to speak about these human-centered problems that, okay, we're gonna talk about zoos in Eastern Europe to just talk about nationalism, but then we kind of lose the side of, of the animals that we're bringing into the story. And I like to think with um, with the, the, the Baltic German biologist uh, Jakob von Uxel and his his concept of the Umwelt. So this idea that uh, the, his interest in how living organisms uh, perceive their own environments and how they experience life to keep the species specific frame to help us tell better stories of animals. And I do really like this uh, animal biography um, method and because its most known proponent is this uh, French uh, historian, Eric Baratay, and he says that um, an animal biography is always a strictly interdisciplinary effort, that you have to be in contact with ecology and ethology to aid historians in, in better understanding and interpreting the, the available records uh, on, on animals. Because uh, the records are written by, sometimes by professionals like naturalists or veterinarians or zookeepers. And sometimes, you know, there are some more popular sources from press or whatnot. But this um, interdisciplinary approach to think a little bit about the life words of animals um, is, is using uh, today's specific knowledge to, to unravel, you know, uh, those things that might be hidden there about the animal behavior, biology, and cognition. And this, uh, this may seem a bit risky for historians, especially, and kind of raise a red flag of like, okay, is animal biography then uh, risking to look at the past through contemporary lenses. But I think that this is rather a tool to help us read the signs left, left by animals as these historical actors who cannot speak for themselves in this direct sense that we understand, you know? So still, I do think that animal biography, especially of zoo animals, has these two um, specific traits. So first one would be its focus on charismatic species. So I think most uh, zoo biographies are about elephants and primates. <laughs> and <laughs> Tracy is a bit guilty of that. <laughs> for all the good reasons and then the, it's just easier because sources on and myself included because i write about elephants so it's because uh these animals usually leave the largest amount of sources in the archives because they're most commented on and then so this and the second uh, trait of um of animal biography is the spotlight on the moments of disruption these acts of rebellion of, of animals that, you know, try to showcase um, animal agency. And because of that, sometimes uh, the most mundane, you know, aspects of animals' daily lives in captivity are the most difficult to reconstruct. And I would love to sometimes know, you know, the boring stuff, but it's just really difficult because sources are a bit silent about those things. You know, uh, Tracy, Marianne's comments just actually... Now I understand, the, maybe, maybe this is, you can talk about this as a problem as somebody who you know, previously was writing about peasants, right? And this is a common problem of how do you represent the subaltern, right? How do you represent the peasant voice? Many, and, you know, especially in, in societies where peasants are mostly illiterate and, and their voices are mediated through the archive or through an official. Um, so yeah, talk about this in, in terms of the work that you're doing in, in this effort to write a, a biography of, of this gorilla, Dina. Yeah, that, that's it's so funny because um, Mariana, before you implicated yourself by saying you work on elephants, I, I almost made a hand gesture in your direction. I had to keep my hand firmly on my desk. Uh, so Sean, I'll start. I'll talk. I'll answer your question. 
But there's a there's issue of uh, charismatic megafauna, which is what uh, Mariana has been referring to a number of times. And I think if you're not in animal studies, you're like, what's charismatic megafauna? So uh, animal studies people like to cast shade on an other animal studies people who do the easy thing and work on charismatic megafauna instead of ants or, you know, whatever, stingrays or I think it's absolutely viable to work on ants and stingrays and the like. Um, but yes, as Mariana says, our charismatic megafauna leave more traces. Um, and I accidentally fell into my Dina story. Um, but uh, it, I, I'm, all of this is in just Mariana because, you know, you know the debates. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but so that's a really interesting issue as well, right? And then Mariana brought out the intro the issue of anthropomorphism. Uh, and of course, if you're working on a primate, that's like you're really in danger there, right, of anthropomorphizing. At the same time, what a lot of documents about, historic documents about these animals reveal is our blatant ant anthropocentrism, right? And the way that every, when I talk about Dina, everybody who talks about her, including me, and I try to mitigate the degree to which I do it, but I do it, she is a vessel for everyone else's ideas. She becomes the mouthpiece for everybody else. Uh, and I try to document how that happens and be self-conscious about how I'm doing that as well. Um, so the interest, uh, the question though, um, you asked about peasants, it's it's kind of interesting because I gave I gave a talk at NYU and I was talking about uh, Krasavitsa, who was a hippopotamus who survived the siege of Leningrad. And uh, so I gave my talk about, yeah, exactly. I gave my talk about, you know, that how the keepers kept her alive and all the, the things that they did and what that means. And Dale Jameson's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I want to know what it feels like to be that hippopotamus in that empty tank. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not a good enough writer to do that. And John Bone was there and he's like, wait a second. We were still debating whether or not peasants, peasants had agency in the nineties. She can't do that, you know? And so it really ties into your question, right? But if you think about, and Mariana uh, referred to this too, if you think about how we get to believing that we might have a chance of writing a biography of an animal, there is, we're standing on pretty solid historic ground. Precisely for that reason, we write histories of those who don't, do not leave written records all the time, right? And she's just another one of, Dina's just another one of those historical actors. And she is a historical actor. You know, she has an effect on the environment. She changes things. And the interesting thing about her too is, is the way in which she is used as a vessel by others. So for example, uh, William Hornaday, who was in charge of the Bronx Zoo, who commissioned this, um, this uh, self-styled primatologist, um, Garner, to go to Congo and acclimatize this gorilla, um, he would not refer to animals as he or she. He would only refer to them as it. Right. He didn't like giving them names. He didn't like anthropomorphizing them in any way because this was a scientific project. Right. And that has its own ramifications that are super interesting to like unravel. Um, so, yeah, does that have. Yeah. In terms of agency as well. I mean, we do also debate the agency of historical actors and how do we do that with animals? And I think, again, we have pretty solid ground to stand on and build from in terms of how we present this. And in terms of animal even resistance, I mean, Dina gets to the, the Bronx Zoo and, and gorillas, they stay with their mothers until they're about four years old. And she's only a year, she's only a year and a half when Garner gets her, they spend a year in Congo. And then, so she's only three when she gets to the, to the New York, to New York. And she had bonded to Garner, they attach like really like strongly. And when he leaves, she's just like, and it's basically failure to thrive. I mean, can't other things diet as a disaster as well, because they think she needs to eat civilized food from the cafeteria. Um, so, yeah. So it's incredibly interesting and revealing as to what people thought about animals, even specialists in that moment. And last thing, uh, Mariana mentioned um, inner, having to be interdisciplinary. I spent all of last summer reading primatology, like current from 2000 observations of Western lowland gorillas and trying to sort of figure out her behavior in terms of the first chapter of this book will be synthetic and said, what is life like for a gorilla zero to four in the wild? 
versus the life that she leads in captivity. I, I want to talk, address this issue of anthropomorphism because I remember, you know, coming every once in a while, there's these news articles where they're studying, you know, animal behavior, and it usually begins to cross over into some statement about human behavior. And, and one that I can think about, think of right off the top of my head is like homosexuality, right? Is, is one like, it, look, it's in nature, therefore it's in natural for humans. Talk about this this issue of anthropomorphism and 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 what types of things do we see in animals and how we use them as in a way as a mirror for our own behavior and our own history and and maybe for this Tracy in in a particular Soviet context in what ways does it reflect a very a particular Soviet type of person? Um, Marianne, you can start. Yeah, I think uh, this really speaks to my doctoral project. So um, uh, I I was researching, um, um, I was interested in how zoos um, became equipped with the set of technologies that through discourses on nature and animals shape identities and politics. So I, for my first MA project, I was writing about zoo in like more classical frame as a biopolitical project. When you start uh, writing about zoos, this is the first thing that always comes to mind, Foucault, prison, biopolitics, and et cetera. But then what happens that when you write about zoo, um, people send you a lot of uh, zoo related stories all the time because they're fun and you know <laughs> they're just out there and uh this is how i actually came across the topic for my dissertation which was uh the the issue of homosexuality in the animal kingdom and and the so-called queer zoo animals so here you can think about the the gay penguins in the new york city central zoo uh or, or some other animals that uh, are reported on in like lgbt media to to um, have you know uh, homosexual same-sex behaviors and then also this huge um apparatus and and activism around it that people actually you know embrace it and like make these uh statements that well well, this means uh, the behavior is natural and etc. So I actually wanted to complicate that a little bit because uh, even though uh, I, I love to look at the animal world for all the different complexities that actually make uh, things as complicated as sexuality just um, um, more complex because with every species, you can have so many different uh, relations, so many different sexes and genders, that this is beyond you know, the very narrow frame of what uh, human sexuality is. But then at the same time as like a political and citizenship project, uh, this is um, this is something that I thought like uh, we have to look at that and it serves a certain purpose because uh, if you think about this narrative of uh, crimes against nature, uh, looking at you know gay penguins can help you to, to naturalize the same sex desire in a way. Um, that uh, that is productive for a political agenda. And also, this is also time specific. So like uh, when we heard about uh, gay penguins all over the world, because it's really not only in New York, there was kind of a proliferation at some point of time. Uh, it was the time when, when uh, penguins were also uh, just presented as great parents that the zookeepers would give them an egg to to hatch together and then they would praise their you know parenting skills and etc and this is exactly the time uh, when a, lo a lot of lgbt groups were also fighting for uh, a recognition of of uh, same-sex marriage but also of of parenting and, and rainbow families so this is not a coincidence when we turn to animals to look for these naturalizing traits and even even if I may interrupt, even how they're displayed, for example, the family, they tend to be displayed in and or, you know, I don't maybe not, I would hope less today, but certainly before in a nuclear family type setting, right? Exactly. Yes. So this is the point that I was researching that actually the sex discourse was always already in the zoo, like before the uh, kind of discussion about homosexuality in animals, it was already always there because, uh, you know, the, the, the display itself is a sexualized space, whether we want it or not. So displaying the, the animals as family units, as monogamous heterosexual couples. If you think about the giant pandas, this is just uh, so obvious because um, there's so much pressure on reproducing them uh, as, as rare and very endangered. And it's also a whole story of how China uses pandas as, as diplomatic uh, animals, but uh, it, every zoo that gets a panda, which is alone, it's not very easy to get, 
always uh, had is obliged to reproduce them. So all these stories about them being uh, a, a heterosexual perfect couple always unfold, even though pandas are, um, as a species, they're quite not interested in sex. So usually the, the baby pandas come from, from uh, human intervention. So from, um, from artificial insemination and all those technologies that are deployed then to actually reproduce them. Uh, but the other thing that came to my mind is actually this huge sex bias in the way that we display animals in, in zoos, but also in uh, natural history museums. So there was this one study that I was thinking of recently uh, that found that among birds and mammals, which are anyway the two groups that are the most um, uh, prominent in collections, males were, were much more frequently collected. So uh, especially when you look at the type specimen, so it's a specimen that is uh, used as um, like a perfect example uh, of a species. I remember that in birds, only 25% and in mammals, I think it was 40% of this type specimens were female. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with a very um, kind of already um, biased uh, source and, you know, a sample. Yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting aspects of, of um, what Mariana is touching on in terms of animals and sexuality, because there, I mean, there was so much discomfort with animal displays of sexuality in the early stages of the zoo, as you can imagine, right? Like this is immoral. You don't want your children to be seeing this kind of thing. That's not what you took them to the zoo for. Uh, so there's that side of it in the early years. Soviets are really interesting too, because they see the zoo, particularly primates, as a way of promoting Darwinism in the early, like up until, um, up until Lysokno becomes like the dominant biological model, which is of course that it's still part of it, but there's all, the, initially the orientation of the Soviet zoo is towards promoting Darwinism and fighting uh, religious uh, faith. Right. So that's interesting. And then there's pressure on the in the post-war zoo, there's this constant pressure for them to adapt their exhibits to uh, to a Lysenko model. And they resist and resist and resist. They drag their feet and because they they don't like it. And it's very clear in the documentation that they don't like it. And they've been instructed to change all of the little descriptors that they put beside the cages. And that's a really interesting source as well. What, what, what is the Lysenko model for a zoo? That's, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they want to look at this sense of, of everything is cooperative, right? They want to shift to this kind of cooperative. They want to tone down any elements of conflict. Whereas in before, conflict sold, right? Conflict's exciting. Conflict is sensational. Uh, so I think there are those elements there as well. Um, I know there's more to it than that. I mean, I'm more familiar with the pre-revolutionary moments. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking, and Mariano was talking about experiments. Uh, so there's um, this biologist, Zavadovsky, who was doing these uh, these sex change experiments with chickens, right? And uh, so he was doing them before the war and during the Civil War. Um, and he's called, he's living in Crimea, and the people around him are calling him Dr. Moreau. And he likes this, like he's flattered by this. He in fact writes an introduction to a, a version of the island of Dr. Moreau. Um, and he ends up going to Moscow and getting a lab at the Moscow Zoo. And when the head of the Moscow Zoo finds out what he's doing, he goes into his lab and lets all of the animals go. And in which case he's fired and the Zavadovsky replaces him as the head of the zoo. And then this quotes guy comes back later on when they shift models, right? So all of these kind of, changes over time are replicated in this microcosm of the zoo, which is super interesting in terms of history of science as well, because the zoo is also battling, like, particularly, in, and now also here, it's a scientific institution, right? And in terms of conservation and breeding and stuff, this is about science. And so the zoos are very defensive about, and I think the, the Soviet zoo was ahead of the, the curve on that in insisting that they were a scientific institution. Uh, whether that was convincing or not. Um, yeah, and I don't know if I answered the, that question. And I was thinking, when Mariana was talking, I got distracted thinking about, yeah, this emphasis on wanting to display large males because they look amazing, right? 
And it's really problematic for those who are trapping them because they're like, uh, you know, those are the hardest to catch, right? Like they're they're really strong. Uh, can you maybe change your attitude? Um, and earlier, um, I was thinking when Mariana was talking about uh, how animals are captured, when the head of the Bronx Zoo, William Hornaday, is writing with Hagenbeck, uh, they're having a correspondence. Uh, Nigel Rothfels talks about this in his book, Savages and Beasts. And um, Hornaday says to Hagenbeck, please don't write me letters in which you're explicit that you caught baby elephants by cutting the tendons of all the adults in the group and leaving them to die and then taking the babies because it upsets it upsets people here. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is again, like this really horrendous side of all of this that we don't see. Uh, and I think breeding is another side of that because it is so invasive and also trying to like recreate extinct animals, the way that animals are used, like they're used, they have to artificially inseminate them. They have to decide which animals are gonna carry them. They're not biologically suited necessarily to carry this kind of animal. So it's it's really, um, yeah, there's a lot to, to talk about. It makes me immediately think, you know, of the um, of the projects of um, uh, re, re breeding back the the mammoth, right? <laughs> which is which is very problematic. But there there are attempts being done at this, and it's really kind of uh, scary. But I think um, to speak a little bit also to this breeding, uh, this is exactly the site that. Um, is so interesting because so many different uh, ways that naturalization of animals um, it just unfolds through the breeding project. And I'm thinking here of the, for example, when the when in Europe they decided to uh, conserve the European bison and the first uh, check in what zoos and which uh, you know private kind of game parks they even have um, left uh, specimens of the European bison, and then the breeding projects were all about um, also sorting out in the beginning. Mm, uh, the, the, the bloodlines and it was so much around the discourses of purity of like there is a lowland bison there is a Caucasian uh, bison and those are different uh, bloodlines and subspecies so that you have to kind of decide which one there were also hybrids with the American bison and they were not considered to be the pure ones you know selected for um, their introduction and etc so because it's um, usually it's a national project especially for Poland, it was a very much national project to reintroduce the bison to the primeval forest in Białowieża, which was just kind of reclaimed after World War I, because it spans through, through Poland, Lithuania, and Belarus. Uh, so, so it was about, you know, breeding these strong, pure bisons that would roam the forest again. And, and this is, you know, extremely problematic, but it was also like a metaphor for a state rebuilding itself, you know, after the war. And just in terms of to add to what Mariana is saying, and she can uh, correct me if I've got the details wrong, but I mean, I think there's a, an element here when the Nazis occupy Poland, they also want these uber bisons, right? They're looking for the pure bloodlines. They're taking the animals and they take a lot of animals from Poland and other occupied areas back to Berlin so that they can have these sort of pure blood animals. So this whole Nazi ideology runs through uh, the world of the zoo as well and the world of, of, of acquiring animals, which is kind of interesting. And I mean, at the Warsaw Zoo, after they finished culling the animals that they wanted, the Gestapo got drunk and drove around the zoo in a Jeep and shot animals in cages for fun, right? So, I mean, there's so much World War II in terms of how animals suffer during that war is really, um, is really heartbreaking as well. Despite, you know, and, and this follows just what you, what you ended with, Tracy, um, despite the efforts in, in the scholarship to decenter humans, right, and center the animal's experience, et cetera, it, none, nevertheless, it, a lot of this work is also about humans. Um, so, so what does, what does the, the research that you've done and even some of your comments today speak to how uh speak to the humans relationships with animals you know how how you know in many respects how we understand ourselves is mediated through how we understand animals or even treat animals but also they how we treat animals as you just mentioned tracy is also a reflection of how you know humans are behave 
But Sean, you, you have to know, this is the hardest question and it's always there. <laughs> and it's ex well, I actually think that um, there's a, we can speak of the animal turn, you know, speaking of like recovering animal stories, but there's also more recently this uh, huge interest in multi-species ethnographies and multi-species, you know, also histories. And I, I, I think I like it a bit more because uh, I don't want to lose the human altogether all the time when I'm talking about these stories of zoo animals. I think it's important to keep the human there, uh, also to take human, you know, keep the human responsible sometimes for what's going on. Exactly. But but I do think that zoos, uh, they, they magnify in some ways our relations to other animals because uh, some in the beginning, the zoos were also thought of as kind of microcosms, you know, showing different biogeographical areas and etc. And I think they say a lot about how you display certain species, certain, certain geographies. And um, it's also very troubling. So even though it seems like the zoo would be a decolonized space now because of the scientific focus on, on species conservation and you know um, battling extinction and, and the six max extinction event and, and, and loss of biodiversity. There is still sometimes discomfort when you go to the zoo and um, you see that uh, the, the threatening of the natural habitats is sometimes you know shown in this racializing way where like the hu the human poachers are, are, are black people in Africa and etc. And that's why we have to keep animals in a European zoo to save them. I mean, it's it's extremely problematic, right? Yeah, because the power dynamic. Extremely. And um, so I think that animals in zoos are still um, objects of, you know, admiration, of curiosity, sometimes fear and excitement, um, most recently the objects of care, but they're still objects. And, and from the perspective of zoo people, they're objects of conservation, but as a representative of species. So it counts as like their genetic makeup, not really individuals so much. And, and it's so hard to talk about zoo animals as wild species because they have been bred in captivity for generations. So they are t somehow tamed, engineered uh, animals and no longer really wild. And I think this poses a huge problem of sometimes when I give talks, people ask me, you know, okay, there's all these critiques of the zoo, but what to do now? But it's so difficult because you cannot just close down the zoo and then return the animals to the wild because there's no wild. And also those animals are not wild animals. So uh, I think that uh, something that's, for me, the zoo shows about the human animal relations the most is capitalism. So I, it's circling, probably uh, John Berger <laughs> would agree with that, that it's always marked by, by somehow consumerism, that the zoos can never really escape this part that you sell the tickets to the zoo, you go there to, to look at them uh, and to kind of consume their images and what you think they are uh, and the stories we tell about them. Anything to add, Tracy? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot, a lot to say uh, on these issues in the sense that, um, you know, the reference to John Berger zoos are about looking, right? They are about looking at these animals. The other side to that is Bridget doesn't give animals a lot of agency. Are animals looking back? What's happening with them? What's going on in their heads? And I agree with Mariana. Like, what do we? We can't release them into the wild. At the same time, we need to be. We need to face the the stereo the stereotypic behavior, stereotyping behavior that happens with animals in captivity. So uh, Colleen Plum, who's an artist photographer, she uh, has uh, an exhibit right now um, that's called uh, "Surveilling Snow Lily," and it's she became obsessed with filming this polar bear in captivity, Snow Lily who walks 27 steps this way and 27 steps that way and 27 steps this way. And she does this all day. And so she just kept the camera on her and, and added it into this loop where you can see the seasons changing and her just walking back and forth and back and forth. And we need to address that. And so the hot water that I get into is um, where, when I started working on this, I also became very aware that an animal was my historical subject that I was gonna build my career or whatever, take stepping on the heads of these animals and to try and be aware of that and, and to work that into my approach as well. And I kind of make the joke, like I didn't eat peasants from Razan. So now, I, I mean, like I don't eat animals either. 
and that kind of became to the point of you know like i'm vegan it's just like in terms of animal abuse my where this has led me is to do as little harm as absolutely possible and it's led me also into looking at just how um incredibly exploitative uh our cherry treatment of animals outside of the zoos are so if we look at slaughterhouses and we don't just mistreat animals we, we mistreat workers like the way that people are treated in slaughterhouses is appalling right but the way that animals are treated in slaughterhouses and people just want to turn away from it and people don't want to face and this has led me to sort of make these connections between um between the situation we're in now and animals right our mistreatment of animals is the reason that we are locked in our homes right now uh and so we need to think about that and we need to change the way we behave toward animals and toward each other and there's a lot of time people will say oh animal rights activists you don't care about humans not at all they, i don't think that's the case at all the case is to be to minimize harm in terms of any sentient being and then you get you know the the people who are like well don't trees have feelings and that's when your head just pops off your shoulders um so don't ask me that <laughs> and, and finally uh what are some of the the big takeaways that you would want people to know from your research, Mariana? Right. The big question of the big takeaway. I think from my current research, if I focus on that, is that um, exotic animals on display and also their bodily parts that are circulating in these global economies are raw materials, that they do carry meanings connected to colonialism and imperial power. I think that's not sometimes very obvious. And I think that my research um, is offering some sort of insight into a physical and very material presence of colonial imperialism in an area without overseas colonies. And I hope that this also inscribes into this um, wider collective efforts that are happening now in, in Eastern Europe to decolonize knowledge in the region, you know, and also in the region and beyond to not only always talk about decolonization of knowledge in terms of uh, Eastern Europe versus Western Europe, but also like, you know, Eastern Europe and global and the global South or Eastern Europe and Asia. So yeah, and ultimately I hope that it will just allow us to build better and more respectful relations with non-human animals. Um, yeah, I think sort of just building on Mariana's last comment, I mean, that's become what's become so um, clear for me is the way that we have related to animals. I mean, colonialism is an obvious example because it's always, but it's always about power. So I see two, two of my friends and colleagues are, I can see them in the background here, uh, Catherine Eddy and many Suzanne Wong and their work, uh, they talk, they really focus on these issues and, and what we're doing with animals and to animals and how we've done them. And also people who are trying to, to document that to sh and to change the way people think, to change the way people act. Uh, and that's something from that, that that's, I've learned as I've been doing these projects. And I think that I would like people to take away, to start thinking much more about how they relate to animals uh, and about that power relationship and about what we have inherited because of that. And a lot of these claims, I have a lot of problems with people who are like, oh, but we're evolved to eat meat. I'm like, okay, first of all, no, we don't have the teeth of meat eaters. That we have the teeth of things that like chew grass. Uh, but that's another story. Like I don't, we are so to my mind beyond biology. You know, it's not, well, most of the things we do are not quote unquote natural, flying in airplanes. Okay, we're not allowed to do that anymore. But that was unnatural, right? And so we are not natural creatures. We can be different. And we have so much agency in terms of what we can do and what we can be. And why aren't we, do, and this sounds now, this is gonna sound like, like, I don't know, some kind of aged hippie or something, you know, but why can't we direct that towards like more peaceful engagement with just about everything and nature in general? I mean, again, why are we where we are now? Well, corporate greed uh, is a huge part of it, right? And just internalizing that and people being, clinging on to things like culture, like, well, I can't stop eating meat because every Sunday that's what we do. And it's just like, that. that's, yeah. I mean, the sort of, we're biological creatures when it's convenient for us and we're not when it, it's convenient for us. So uh, maybe stop acting only on convenience. Maybe that might take away, you know. 
I get angry. I get upset about these things. <laughs> that was Tracy McDonald and Mariana Shigelska. Tracy McDonald is a historian of Russian and Soviet history at McMaster's University. She co-edited a volume of documents on collectivization and is the author of Face to the Village, the Ryazan Countryside under Soviet Rule, 1921 to 1930. She's also the co-editor with Daniel Vandensommers of Zoo Studies, A New Humanities. McDonald was also one of the three founding members of the independent documentary film company Chemodan Films. Mariana Sigelska is a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. Her most recent articles on zoos and colonial encounters are Elephant Empire, Zoos and Colonial Encounters in Eastern Europe, published in Cultural Studies, and Pandas and the Reproduction of Race and Sexuality in the Zoo, in Zoo Studies, A New Humanities. She's also co-edited a special issue of Catalyst, Feminism, Theory, and Technoscience, titled Planetarium, Human Vegetal Ecologies, in 2019. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. What am I?